0: Welcome everybody to History Analyzed. I'm your host, Mark Palmer. This is a podcast which examines historical events and issues. The event we're analyzing today is Pompeii being destroyed by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. There's so much more to the story than that day in the year 79 CE when a volcanic eruption wiped out Pompeii and the surrounding towns. Just as fascinating is the story of how Pompeii was preserved and found so many centuries later. In my opinion, Pompeii is the greatest archaeological site in the world. It's a time capsule which tells us so much. Everybody's heard of Pompeii, but few have heard of Herculaneum. That was the smaller city which was also destroyed by that same eruption of Mount Vesuvius in 79 CE. Pompeii and Herculaneum were only about 8 miles or 13 kilometers apart. Throughout this episode, I'm going to focus on Pompeii because it was the larger city and is a lot more famous. However, just about everything I mentioned regarding Pompeii also applies to Herculaneum and the other small settlements in the area. Before the eruption, Pompeii had a population of approximately 12,000 people. Herculaneum was much smaller than Pompeii with a population of only about 5,000 people. Only a small part of Herculaneum has been excavated because a lot of that ancient city is now covered by the modern Italian city of Ercolano. Ercolano is a city of approximately 50,000 people. You can't start tearing down a city that size just to expose ancient ruins. Fortunately for the world, Pompeii is not covered by a modern city. That's why archaeologists have been able to excavate and uncover most of Pompeii. Okay, time for some background. In the year 79 CE, the Roman Empire was at its peak. This was an empire that stretched from Britain, throughout Western Europe, the Middle East, and North Africa. It completely surrounded the Mediterranean. That's why the Romans referred to the Mediterranean as Mare Nostrum, which in Latin means our sea. Pompeii was a thriving Roman city which had existed for centuries. It was located on the Gulf of Naples. So what happened when Pompeii, Herculaneum, and the surrounding area were destroyed? Mount Vesuvius was only about five or six miles, or about eight or nine kilometers from Pompeii. Nowadays, we would know that an eruption was coming. There were several earth tremors leading up to Mount Vesuvius exploding. But this was 2,000 years ago, and people did not understand volcanic activity. Also, in the year 62 CE, there had been a large earthquake in the area. Geologists now believe that this was a precursor to the volcanic eruption, which occurred 17 years later. But nobody understood that in those days. Because of that large earthquake in 62 CE, as well as smaller earthquakes at other times, when the people of Pompeii were experiencing tremors in 79 CE, they just thought this was a natural phenomenon that was common in that area. They thought the shaking was simply earthquakes and not the harbinger of a volcanic eruption. The first sign occurred in the morning when a strange cloud appeared above Mount Vesuvius. It's believed that the cloud above the volcano extended 20 miles, or 32 kilometers, into the sky. The local citizens did not know what it meant. Next came ash, which was falling on the city like dirty snowflakes. The people of Pompeii did not know what to do. Most fled, but some thought it was safer to stay inside their homes. It's easy to look back from the 21st century and ask why all of them did not get out of the area as quickly as they could but you have to remember that nobody understood what was going on. This was terrifying and it certainly seemed reasonable to some people to seek shelter indoors. By the afternoon pumice stones were raining down. It's estimated that the rocks were falling at a rate of approximately six inches or 15 centimeters per hour. At some point it was too late to escape the city. People became trapped in their homes. Some roofs started to cave in from the weight of the accumulating rocks. By nighttime, there was a pyroclastic flow. According to the United States Geological Survey, a pyroclastic flow is a hot, typically above 800 degrees Celsius or above 1500 degrees Fahrenheit, chaotic mixture of rock fragments, gas, and ash that travels rapidly, tens of meters per second, away from a volcanic vent or collapsing flow front. Pyroclastic flows can be extremely destructive and deadly because of their high temperature and mobility. And for those of us who do not use the metric system, tens of meters per second is essentially tens of yards per second. The pyroclastic flow moved much faster than human beings can possibly run. Pompeii ended up being buried in approximately 20 feet or six meters of volcanic debris. Until fairly recently, It was believed that people died of suffocation from being covered with volcanic ash. But now, it's believed that the superheated gas in the pyroclastic flow is what killed these poor people. Those excessive temperatures literally made their blood boil and liquefied their organs. As horrific as this sounds, it is believed that death was mercifully quick. A lot of what we know about the eruption of Mount Vesuvius and the destruction of Pompeii comes from an eyewitness. He's known in history as Pliny the Younger. His actual Roman name in Latin was Gaius Plinius Cecilius Secundus. I'm not sure why we anglicize some names from ancient Rome, but we don't anglicize others. But for whatever reason, instead of calling him Plinius, English-speaking historians refer to him as Pliny. And why is he called the Younger? It's because he was raised by his uncle, who was famous in his own right, and, as you probably guessed, is known as Pliny the Elder. For the sake of brevity, I'm just going to refer to Pliny the Younger as Pliny in this episode, unless I'm specifically referring to his uncle. Pliny was a lawyer and a magistrate. Pliny is significant because he wrote many letters to important people in ancient Rome, including the Emperor Trajan and the historian Tacitus. Many of Pliny's letters survive to this day and provide first-hand information on events taking place in the latter part of the 1st century CE and the beginning of the 2nd century CE. Two of Pliny's letters to the Roman historian Tacitus describe the eruption of Mount Vesuvius and the destruction of Pompeii and the surrounding area. I'm going to read parts of the English translations of those two letters, but I'm going to skip over some of the parts. In the first letter to Tacitus, Pliny describes what happened to his uncle, Pliny the Elder. Referring to his uncle, he states, He was at that time with the fleet under his command at Mycenaeum. That was a small Roman town on the Bay of Naples. On the 24th of August, about one in the afternoon, my mother desired him to observe a cloud which appeared of a very unusual size and shape. A cloud, from which mountain was uncertain at this distance, but it was found afterwards to come from Mount Vesuvius, was ascending, the appearance of which I cannot give you a more exact description of than by likening it to that of a pine tree, for it shot up to a great height in the form of a very tall trunk, which spread itself out at the top into a sort of branches, occasioned, I imagine, either by a sudden gust of air that impelled it, the force of which decreased as it advanced upwards, or the cloud itself being pressed back again by its own weight expanded in the manner I have mentioned. It appeared sometimes bright and sometimes dark and spotted, according as it was either more or less impregnated with earth and cinders. The way he describes this sounds like a mushroom cloud from an atomic blast. Pliny goes on, He, meaning his uncle, received a note from Rectina, the wife of Bassus, who was in the utmost alarm at the imminent danger which threatened her. For her villa, lying at the foot of Mount Vesuvius, there was no way of escape but by sea. She earnestly entreated him, therefore, to come to her assistance. He ordered the galleys to be put to sea and went himself on board with an intention of assisting not only Rectina— but the several other towns which lay thickly strewn along that beautiful coast. Hastening then to the place from whence others fled with the utmost terror, he steered his course direct to the point of danger, and with so much calmness and presence of mind as to be able to make and dictate his observations upon the motion and all the phenomena of that dreadful scene. He was now so close to the mountain that the cinders, which grew thicker and hotter the nearer he approached, fell into the ships, together with pumice stones and black pieces of burning rock. They were in danger, too, not only of being aground by the sudden retreat of the sea, but also from the vast fragments which rolled down from the mountain and obstructed all the shore. Here he stopped to consider whether he should turn back again, to which the pilot advised him, Fortune, said he, favors the brave. Steer to where Pompanianus is. Pompanianus was then at Stabii, another Roman town on the Bay of Naples. Pliny then describes that his uncle took his ships to the town of Stabii and went to the house of his friend, Pompanianus. They ate dinner and tried to stay in the house for safety, but they realized they couldn't stay because, as Pliny explained, The court which led to his apartment being now almost filled with stones and ashes, if he had continued there any longer it would have been impossible for him to have made his way out. They consulted together whether it would be most prudent to trust to the houses, which now rocked from side to side with frequent and violent concussions, as though shaken from their very foundations, or fly to the open fields, where the calcined stones and cinders, though light indeed, yet fell in large showers and threatened destruction. In this choice of dangers, they resolved for the fields, a resolution which... While the rest of the company were hurried into by their fears, my uncle embraced upon cool and deliberate consideration. They went out then, having pillows tied upon their heads with napkins, and this was their whole defense against the storm of stones that fell around them. I know that over the years, people have made fun of Pliny the Elder's idea of tying pillows to their heads, but I don't think they should be ridiculed. They really had no protection, and pillows were certainly better than nothing when stones were literally falling from the sky. Anyway, Pliny the Younger goes on. It was now day everywhere else, but there was a deeper darkness prevailed than in the thickest night, which, however, was in some degree alleviated by torches and other lights of various kinds. They thought proper to go further down upon the shore to see if they might safely put out to sea, but found the waves still running extremely high and boisterous. There my uncle, laying himself down upon a sailcloth, which was spread for him, called twice for some cold water, which he drank, when immediately the flames, preceded by a strong whiff of sulfur, dispersed the rest of the party, and obliged him to rise. He raised himself up with the assistance of two of his servants, and instantly fell down dead, suffocated, as I conjecture, by some gross and noxious vapor, having always had a weak throat, which was often inflamed. As soon as it was light again, which was not until the third day after this melancholy accident his body was found entire and without any marks of violence upon it in the dress in which he fell and looking more like a man asleep than dead during all of this time my mother and i were at Mycenae that was all in the first letter to Tacitus obviously Pliny did not witness all of those events we believe witnesses told him about his uncle's actions and how he died In a second letter, Pliny describes what happened to his mother and him in the town of Mycenaeum. There had been noticed for many days before a trembling of the earth, which did not alarm us much, as this is quite an ordinary occurrence in Campania. But it was so particularly violent that night that it not only shook, but actually overturned, as it would seem, everything about us. We sat down in the open court of the house, which occupied a small space between the buildings and the sea, as I was at that time but 18 years of age. Though it was now morning, the light was still exceedingly faint and doubtful. The buildings all around us tottered, and though we stood upon open ground, yet as the place was narrow and confined, there was no remaining without imminent danger. We therefore resolved to quit the town. A panic-stricken crowd followed us, and, as to a mind distracted with terror, every suggestion seems more prudent than its own, pressed on us in dense array to drive us forward as we came out. Being at the convenient distance from the houses, we stood still in the midst of a most dangerous and dreadful scene. The chariots, which we had ordered to be drawn out, were so agitated backwards and forwards, though upon the most level ground, that we could not keep them steady, even by supporting them with large stones. The sea seemed to roll back upon itself, and to be driven from its banks by the convulsive motion of the earth." it is certain at least the shore was considerably enlarged and several sea animals were left upon it. Pliny continues. On the other side, a black and dreadful cloud broken with rapid zigzag flashes, revealed behind it variously shaped masses of flame. These last were like sheet lightning, but much larger. Soon afterwards, the cloud began to descend and cover the sea. It had already surrounded and concealed the island of Capri and the promontory of Mycenae. The ashes now began to fall upon us, though in no great quantity. I looked back. A dense, dark mist seemed to be following us spreading itself over the country like a cloud. Let us turn out of the high road, I said, while we can still see, for fear that, should we fall in the road, we should be pressed to death in the dark by the crowds that are following us. We had scarcely sat down when night came upon us, not such as we have when the sky is cloudy or when there is no moon, but that of a room when it is shut up and all the lights put out. You might hear the shrieks of women, the screams of children, and the shouts of men, some calling for their children, others for their parents, others for their husbands, and seeking to recognize each other by the voices that replied, one lamenting his own fate, another that of his family, some wishing to die from the very fear of dying, some lifting their hands to the gods, but the greater part convinced that there were now no gods at all and that the final endless night of which we have heard had come upon the world. How amazing is that to hear somebody describe a scene which reasonably seemed like the end of the world. Plenty continues. Among these were some who augmented the real terrors by others, imaginary or willfully invented. I remember some who declared that one part of Mycenum had fallen, that another was on fire. It was false, but they found people to believe them. It now grew rather lighter, which we imagined to be rather the forerunner of an approaching burst of flames, as in truth it was, than the return of day. However, the fire fell at a distance from us. Then again, we were immersed in thick darkness, and a heavy shower of ashes rained upon us, which we were obliged every now and then to stand up to shake off. Otherwise, we should have been crushed and buried in the heap. I might boast that, during all of this scene of horror, not a sigh or expression of fear escaped me, had not my support been grounded in that miserable, though mighty, consolation that all mankind were involved in the same calamity and that I was perishing with the world itself. Pliny then describes... At last, this dreadful darkness was dissipated by degrees, like a cloud or smoke. The real day returned, and even the sun shone out, though with a lurid light, like when an eclipse is coming on. Every object that presented itself to our eyes, which were extremely weakened, seemed changed, being covered deep with ashes as if with snow we returned to mycenum where we refreshed ourselves as well as we could and passed an anxious night between hope and fear though indeed with a much larger share of the latter for the earthquake still continued while many frenzied persons ran up and down, heightening their own and their friends' calamities by terrible predictions. However, my mother and I, notwithstanding the danger we had passed and that which still threatened us, had no thoughts of leaving the place till we could receive some news of my uncle. Historians and scientists believe that Pliny's eyewitness account seems fairly accurate. I feel like it brings an historical event to life. It reminds us that these were real people who suffered... And so many died. When people think of a volcanic eruption, they picture lava pouring out, and I think a lot of people presume that's what killed the inhabitants of Pompeii. But they were not burned by lava. I mentioned earlier about the pyroclastic flow. The United States National Institute of Health conducted a review of the victims who died in Herculaneum. Although there were some small differences, the fates of the people of Herculaneum and Pompeii were essentially the same. According to the U.S. National Institute of Health, the towns of Herculaneum, Pompeii, and other Roman settlements up to 20 kilometers away were suddenly hit and overwhelmed by successive ash avalanches, fast-moving clouds of hot volcanic ash, and gases known as pyroclastic surges, capable of killing all residents who were not yet evacuated. Given the impossibility of access to the skeletal remains of the Pompeians locked within the plaster casts and the sparse occasional finds of victims elsewhere, most of the anthropological studies focused on victims discovered in Herculaneum. The first investigations were carried out to detect the biological and pathological features of these people. More recent multidisciplinary studies on the victim skeletons and their volcanological context shed light on the dynamic impacts of the 79 AD Plinian eruption on the area around the volcano and on its inhabitants. The effects of the high temperatures of the surges as suffered by the remaining resident population were revealed. The U.S. National Institute of Health further states, The extraordinarily rare preservation of significant putative evidence of hemoprotein thermal degradation from the eruption victims strongly suggests the rapid vaporization of body fluids and soft tissues of people at death due to exposure to extreme heat. Simply stated, the U.S. National Institute of Health takes the position that the extreme heat killed the people of Pompeii, Herculaneum, and the surrounding areas almost instantly. I have no medical background, but I presume that the U.S. National Institute of Health is probably correct. However, there is still some dispute as to whether the people died from exposure to the severe heat or whether they suffocated under the volcanic ash. Either way, it was a horrible way to die. There's now a debate as to the actual date of the eruption of Mount Vesuvius and the destruction of Pompeii and the surrounding area. Everybody agrees on the year being 79 CE. Until recently, it was considered that the date was definitely August 24 because of Pliny's letter listing that date. But several issues come into play. First of all, Pliny did not list the date as August 24. That is the English translation of his letter, which was written in Latin. But that's not the way ancient Romans kept track of dates. His letter definitely references what we would call August 24, but he said it in a different manner because of the way that Romans listed dates. All right, it's time for a little diversion into the Roman calendar. We essentially use the calendar imposed by Julius Caesar with the help of the Alexandrian astronomer Sosigenes. I can hear some of you screaming at me. We don't use the Julian calendar today. We use the Gregorian calendar. And my response is that the Gregorian calendar is essentially the Julian calendar with a few tweaks that were mandated by Pope Gregory Thirteenth in 1582. Since we essentially use the Julian calendar, we use the Roman names for months. In Latin, the Romans called the months Ianuarius, Februarius, Martius, Aprilus, Maius, Junius, Quintilus, Sextilus, September, October, November, and December. I do not speak Latin, so please forgive my terrible pronunciations. Most of the months have been anglicized from the Latin words, but the last four months are exactly what the Romans called them, September, October, November, and December. Some of you may have noticed that those months start with a prefix for a number. Sept, S-E-P-T, means seven. Oct, O-C-T, means eight. nov means nine and dec means ten think about your days in geometry class when shapes were given names based upon the number of sides a triangle has three sides and gets its name from the prefix tri from the latin root meaning three here's an example that most of you will recognize in most countries stop signs are red with white letters and in the shape of an octagon. Octagon meaning a shape with eight sides. We get the word octagon because it starts with that prefix oct, O-C-T, meaning eight. Anyway, getting back to the calendar. The names of those months, September, October, November, December, indicate that they are the 7th, 8th, ninth, and 10th months. And I know you're screaming that they are not. They were named that because in the original Roman calendar, they were the 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th months. That was because in the original Roman calendar, the year began in March. And in the original Roman calendar, there were only 10 months. But January and February were added to the Roman calendar to give us the 12 months we are familiar with today. Did you ever wonder why February is the odd month? It's got 28 days and all the other ones have either 30 or 31 And why is February the month where we add an extra day on leap years? It's because when February was added to the calendar, it was the 12th month. That's why February is the odd month because originally it was at the end of the year. But at some point, the start date of the year was moved from March to January 1. So now with the addition of January and February and the new year beginning on January 1, September is now the ninth month, October the 10th month, November the 11th month, and December the 12th month. And while we're discussing the names of months, there are two months named for people. The month of July was originally called Quintilis because it had originally been the fifth month before the addition of January and February. The name was changed to Iulius, or July in English, in honor of Julius Caesar. why they pick that month? It's because of his birthday. We're pretty sure that Caesar was born in the year 100 BCE, but we're not exactly sure of the date. It was either July 12 or 13. The other month that's named after a person is August. It's named after Caesar Augustus, the first Roman emperor, who was originally known as Gaius Octavius. In most history books, you see him listed by his anglicized name of Octavian. And when he was emperor, he's usually listed as Caesar Augustus. The month that had been known as Sextilis was renamed to Augustus, which we simply call August in English. So, why did they pick August? No, it was not his birthday month. And since I'm sure you're dying to know, his birthday was September 23 in the year 63 BCE. A lot of people erroneously believed it was chosen because that is the month when Caesar Augustus died. He died on August 19 in the year. 14 CE. But that's not the reason August was named after Caesar Augustus. They changed the name of the month while Augustus was still alive in the year 8 BCE. Supposedly, the Senate had offered to change the name of September to August because Augustus was born in September. But he picked the month of Sextilis because a lot of significant events in his life occurred during that month. It's simply a coincidence that he happened to die in the month of August, 22 years later. Although, starting with Julius Caesar, the Romans used the calendar, which is essentially the one we use today, they did not list their dates the way we do. We say the month and the day like february 3rd or april 22nd at least here in the u.s in most countries the day is listed first and then the month so they would say 3 february or 22 april but that's essentially the same the romans listed their dates in an entirely different manner the romans marked three reckoning days in each month The first of every month was called the Calends. That's where we get our word calendar, although they spelled Calends with a K, K K-A-L-E-N-D-S. Then, in the middle of the month, there was a date known as the Ides, spelled I-D-E-S. And I know you're thinking, hey, I've heard of that term. That's right. Most of us have heard that phrase, beware the Ides of March, because it appears in Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar. But the Ides do not fall right in the middle of the month. In four months, the Ides fall on the 15th day of the month. Those are March, May, July, and October. That's because those were the only four months that had 31 days in the original Roman calendar before the various reforms. The other months were shorter, and the Ides were designated as the 13th day of the month. It didn't matter that later January, August, and December ended up with 31 days. The Ides remained on the 13th and were not moved to the 15th day of those months. So, in the Shakespeare play Julius Caesar, when the soothsayer warns, beware the Ides of March, he means, look out for March 15th. And that was the day that Julius Caesar was assassinated by senators, in 44 BCE. Okay, so now we have the calends on the first day of the month, and the ides in the middle of the month, either on the 13th or the 15th. The other day they used to mark their dates was called the nones, spelled N-O-N-E-S. In the Roman calendar, nones were the ninth day before the ides. That means the seventh day of March, May, July, and October, and the fifth day of the other months. Some of you who are very quick at math might be questioning why I said the ninth day before the Ides of March would be March 7. Well, it's because the Romans used inclusive counting. Fun fact, the Romans did not have a zero in their numbering system. When you look at Roman numerals, There is no zero. They only used seven different letters for numbers. The letter I equals one. The letter V equals five. The letter X equals 10. The letter L equals 50. The letter C equals 100. The letter D equals 500. The letter M equals 1,000. What about all the numbers in between those numbers, or any numbers after 1,000? The Romans would put their numeric symbols together. They would just put the symbols in descending order from left to right. Here's an example. The Romans would write the number 17 as XVII. You simply add up the numbers. X equals 10, V equals 5, and then the two letter I's, 10 plus 5 plus 2 equals 10. 17. If a Roman numeral with a smaller value was placed to the left of a Roman numeral with a higher value, then you would subtract that amount. Here's an example. The Romans would write the number 4 as IV. Since the letter I represents our number 1, and it is to the left of the larger Roman numeral, in this case the letter V, which represents our number 5, you subtract the 1 from the 5 to get the number 4. There are two limitations to this subtractive principle. Number 1, a smaller Roman numeral can only be placed in front of one of the two Roman numerals that are next highest in value. I know that sounds confusing, but here's an example to illustrate. The Roman numeral I, meaning our number one, can only be placed before the Roman numeral V, meaning five, or the Roman numeral X, meaning 10. You can't put the Roman numeral I, meaning one, before the Roman numeral C, meaning 100. Limitation number two. You can only place one smaller Roman numeral in front of a larger one, for subtractive purposes. Again, I know the rules are confusing when I state them, but here's an example to clarify. The Romans would never write the number 8 as IIX, meaning subtracting 2 from 10. They would write the number 8 as V111. As I explained earlier, the Romans did not have a symbol for the number 0. They simply wrote the word NULA, N-U-L-L-A, which was Latin for none. And, by the way, in modern day Italian, it also means none or nothing. So, that is why they used inclusive counting, because they did not have a zero. That means they counted the number they were counting to and started with the number they were counting from. Today, we use exclusive counting. We don't count the number we are starting from. Again, I know it's confusing, so here's an example. How many days is Sunday after Friday? Today, we would say that Sunday is the second day after Friday because we don't count Friday as number one. We count Friday as zero and then Saturday as the first day, and Sunday as the second day after Friday. If you're listening to this episode on a Friday, you would consider Sunday as two days from now, not three days from now. But the Romans would count Sunday as the third day, because they would count Friday as day number one, Saturday as day number two, and Sunday as day number three. Starting on a Friday, Romans would consider Sunday as the third day. This is why the Nones of March is the 7th of March because the Romans would count backwards using the 15th as day 1 and March 7th as day 9. They would count backwards as March 15, 14, 13, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8, and 7. In modern times, since we use exclusive counting, we would say that March 7th is only the 8th day before March 15th because we would start counting backwards on March 14th. We would not count March 15th. Okay, I hope I did not lose you in all of this. I know the Romans had a complicated system. But I bring it up for two reasons. Number one, which is the main reason, I find all of this fascinating. Number two is the fact that it does pertain to today's episode when we're trying to determine the date that Mount Vesuvius erupted. So when the Romans listed the date, they subtracted from the next reckoning date. It's easiest if I just give you some examples. If we're talking about March 1st, the Romans would just say the Calends of March. If we're talking about March 7th, they would just say the knowns of March. And for March 15th, they would just say the Ides of March. But what about if it's not one of those three reckoning dates? Then they count backwards from the next reckoning date. So if we're talking about March 30, the next reckoning date is the calends of April, which of course we would call April 1st. So it's bizarre because once you get past the Ides, you're counting backwards from the first day of the next month. So March 30 would be the third day before the calends of April. That's because April 1, the calends, would be day number one because of their use of inclusive counting. March 31 would be day number two, and March 30 would be day number three. So instead of saying March 30, the Romans would say the third day before the calends of April. Okay, now that I've taken a long detour into Roman numerals and the Roman calendaring system, let's get back to the date that Mount Vesuvius exploded and destroyed Pompeii, Herculaneum, and the surrounding area. The traditional date has always been listed as August 24. We get that date from Pliny's letter to Tacitus. In that letter, Pliny specifically states that the date was August 24. Of course, as I just outlined, using the cumbersome way that the Romans kept track of dates, he would not have said August 24. In his letter, Pliny would have listed the date as the ninth day before the calends of September. In historical writings in English, we just translate that to August 24. So why do we doubt that date now? It's because of recent archaeological findings. And when it comes to archaeology, the term recent can span many years. Some people now believe that the eruption of Mount Vesuvius occurred in October or possibly even November of the year 79 CE. Let's go over the arguments in favor of the August 24 date, as well as the claim that the destruction of Pompeii occurred in October or November. Really, there's only one argument in favor of August 24 as the correct date, Pliny is the only eyewitness who wrote an account which exists today. There were thousands of eyewitnesses. We just don't know if any other than Pliny wrote an account of the Mount Vesuvius eruption in 79 CE. The letter from Pliny is the only one known to exist, and it lists the date as August 24. So why do we even question that date? Well, several reasons. Number one. Historians agree that the eruption of Mount Vesuvius occurred in the year 79 CE, but Pliny did not write his letter to Tacitus until approximately 28 years later. We believe that the letter was written in 107 or 108 CE. That raises the question as to whether or not he accurately remembered the date. I do not put any stock in this argument. When people claim that Pliny listed the wrong date. My reply is that he might have had the day wrong by a day or two, but it's hard to believe he would have been off by two or three months. This had to have been the biggest event of his life. If you had experienced an event like that, you're going to remember when it happened. And it's not like he was an old man when he wrote those letters to Tacitus. He was only about 46 years old. Issue number two. We don't have an original letter handwritten by Pliny to Tacitus. These documents we have from the ancient Romans have been copied and recopied over the centuries. Most of this occurred during the Middle Ages. Obviously, there is a chance for human error and somebody might have listed an incorrect date. Some historians even argue that somebody copying Pliny's letter in the Middle Ages might have purposely changed the date for their own personal reasons. The oldest known copy of Pliny's letter is in the Florence-based medicia Lorenziana Library, and that copy lists the date as August 24. Since it's the oldest copy known to exist we give it a little more credibility. But, as with any documents that are centuries old and are merely copies of the originals, we often have to question their accuracy. Since the only written account by an eyewitness might be unreliable, what does the archaeological evidence say? There are several archaeological clues to consider. Number one, the people who were killed in Pompeii and Herculaneum were wearing heavy clothing. Also, braziers which were a pan for holding burning coals, were discovered in many of the houses. Some historians argue that these two factors indicate that the event did not occur in August when it's very hot in southern Italy. But I don't believe that those factors are definitive. Some historians have argued that clothing might have been put on by the people as they were trying to protect themselves from falling ash. And the braziers were not just used for heating homes, they were also used for cooking. So the existence of the braziers is really irrelevant. Issue number two, evidence of food that existed at the time of the eruption actually goes both ways. Remnants of garum, a fish sauce that I'll talk about later, was found in Pompeii. This supports the August eruption date because the fish used to make garum was most plentiful in the summer. Conversely, scientific evidence supports the existence of walnuts and pomegranates in Pompeii, and these items were usually not found until mid to late autumn. Issue number three. In 2018, a piece of graffiti was discovered in a house in Pompeii. By the way, many articles refer to the writing as a graffito. Apparently, that's the proper form for the singular of graffiti. I've never heard that used in everyday English, so I'm just going to say graffiti. Anyway, the graffiti was written in charcoal and reads, XVI, with a space, K, space, N-O-V, in Ulcit, Pro Massimus, Eseritione, which supposedly translates as the 16th day before the calends of November. He indulged in food in an immoderate way. Again, we are dealing with the cumbersome way that the Romans listed dates. The 16th day before the calends of November is the day that we would list as October 17. Well, whoever wrote this graffiti was basically saying that on October 17, he pigged out, he ate a lot of food. Some have argued that this definitively dates the eruption as occurring in late October or possibly November 79 CE, because it was written in charcoal and charcoal would not survive very long. These people argue that graffiti written in charcoal had to have been covered up fairly quickly with the ash for it to survive to today. That's an assumption I've read in many places. It's unclear, but I believe that this charcoal writing was on a wall on the inside of the house where it was discovered. If the graffiti was discovered on an outside wall, then I think that their argument carries more weight. However, I've been unable to discover any study to determine how long a writing with charcoal on an inside wall of a house would last. If there is such an investigation, I have not been able to find it. So, I examined how long do charcoal drawings last? I know nothing about art, but I do know that some artists like to draw with charcoal. There are lots of items online explaining how you should seal your charcoal drawing so it doesn't smear. But I could not find anything that said that a charcoal drawing would disappear over time. The point is, I was unable to find how long some graffiti written in charcoal would last on a wall inside of a house. And the graffiti just lists the date of October 17, but does not list a year. So, I would argue that it's possible that this graffiti was written in October of the year 78 CE and simply remained on the wall for 10 months until Mount Vesuvius exploded. It's certainly conceivable. All I'm saying is that this is not the smoking gun that some people think it is. So, what was the date that Pompeii and Herculaneum were destroyed? I don't know, and I don't think anybody truly knows. It could have been August 24, it could have been late October, or November. But because of other Roman records, it appears that nobody doubts that the year was 79 CE. So what happened after the eruption in 79 CE. Pompeii, Herculaneum, and the surrounding area were all deserted. Thousands were killed and their remains stayed buried under the volcanic debris. The people who had escaped had nothing to return to. Their homes and cities had been destroyed. There were no efforts by the ancient Romans to uncover these cities or any of the buildings. We believe that in the months after the volcanic eruption that thieves dug down to steal any valuables they could find in these houses and other buildings. But other than that, it seems that nobody tried to excavate the area. What makes Pompeii and Herculaneum such incredible archaeological sites is the fact that they have been essentially preserved for the past 2,000 years. So how were these ancient cities found after being buried for so many centuries? In the early 1700s, a farmer was digging a well and discovered some pieces of marble. This led other people to dig and they discovered some remnants of the ancient city of Herculaneum. Today, approximately one quarter of the ancient Roman city of Herculaneum has been excavated. Unfortunately, the remainder of Herculaneum is underneath the modern Italian city of Ercolano. The world is much more fortunate with Pompeii. Luckily, nothing was built on top of the ancient ruins of Pompeii excavators only had to remove dirt and rock to expose Pompeii. In the 1590s, a canal was being dug near Mount Vesuvius, and the walls of an ancient building was discovered. The finding was noted, but they went on digging the canal. It wasn't until a century and a half later, That excavation of Pompeii began in 1748. Obviously, there have been many interruptions, but the uncovering of Pompeii has continued to the present time. If you've ever seen any photos of Pompeii, you've seen those plaster casts depicting the people who died when Mount Vesuvius exploded. These were made in the late 1800s, when a new Italian archaeologist was in charge of the Pompeii excavations. His name was Giuseppe Fiorelli. And for those of you who do not speak Italian, his name translates as Joseph Little Flowers. As they were excavating Pompeii, occasionally they found empty spaces in the layers of ash. There were voids where human bodies had once been. Over the centuries, the human bodies decayed and left these voids in the calcified ash. So in the late 1800s, the archaeologists poured plaster into these air pockets. The plaster made casts, which show the exact positions these poor victims were in when they died. Since excavation is still proceeding, a similar technique is used today. But instead of plaster, a clear resin is injected into these spaces. The resin is more durable and does not destroy the bones are in these spaces. The excavation of Pompeii has told us so much about how the ancient Romans lived. As was common in those days, there was a wall which encircled the city. The wall surrounding the city had a circumference of approximately two miles or a little over three kilometers. The city itself was a little over of a quarter of a square mile, or about two-thirds of a square kilometer. This was a good-sized city. I've seen estimates of the population varying anywhere between 10,000 and 20,000 people, but the most common estimate I've seen is approximately 12,000 inhabitants. We believe approximately 2,000 people died in Pompeii as a result of the Mount Vesuvius eruption. As tragic as that is, it demonstrates that most people were able to get out before it was too late. Over the years, I've dragged my wife and two kids to many historical sites. I've been to Pompeii twice, and it might be my favorite historical spot. If you are ever going to be in Italy, I would strongly recommend that you visit Pompeii. It's amazing that you get to walk around so much of the city. You are walking on sidewalks and streets that ancient Romans walked on 2,000 years ago. Although the city thrived about 20 centuries ago, their lifestyle was much closer to the way we live today than the manner people lived in most of Europe from the five hundred CE up until the 1500s obviously there were some despicable parts of ancient roman life most notably slavery and gladiatorial games but i'm talking about the everyday life of the common people of pompeii being fairly similar to our lives today pompeii was a city with houses and apartments there were stores bakeries bars and restaurants besides sit-down restaurants There were also takeout restaurants. This was because a lot of the working class people did not have sophisticated kitchens in their homes and often picked up meals at these takeout places. Like all Roman cities, Pompeii had a forum. The forum was the heart of a Roman city. The form of Pompeii was typical in that it was rectangular and had open spaces and public buildings and was used to conduct religious, political, and cultural affairs. Pompeii had an amphitheater as well as a gymnasium. There were brothels as well as other businesses. There was an aqueduct system which brought fresh water on a continuous basis. The water flowed continuously from at least 41 public fountains throughout the city. Pompeii was laid out in neat city blocks in a grid pattern. The streets had raised sidewalks. There were even stepping stones, which were used as crosswalks, which allowed people to cross the street without stepping down into the street, into the water, horse manure, or anything else that might be in the street, but also allowed horses and wheeled carts to pass through. Because of the narrowness of most of the streets, and the wear and tear on the stone curbs made by carts brushing against them, at least some historians believe that the streets were one way. In addition to the people who lived there year-round, a lot of wealthy people had vacation homes in Pompeii. The Bay of Naples was a vacation destination. Pompeii also had a port on the Bay of Naples. Because of all the volcanic material from Mount Vesuvius, which extended the landmass out into the water. Pompeii is no longer on the Bay of Naples, but is almost a mile or a little over a kilometer inland. The ancient Roman diet was very similar to what's called the modern Mediterranean diet. They ate a lot of fish shellfish, sea urchins, a lot of fruits and vegetables, bread with olive oil, pork, and even songbirds. One big difference was fish sauce. Apparently, the Romans loved this fish sauce and put it on a lot of their foods. It was their big condiment, like we used ketchup, salsa, mustard, and mayonnaise. I know I'm not an impartial judge since I do not like seafood. But I think even modern-day people who like seafood would find this fish sauce disgusting. It was called garum and was made from fermented fish guts. Anyway, apparently the production of garum was a local business in Pompeii. Since the year 79 CE, there have been several eruptions of Mount Vesuvius. Fortunately, none have been anywhere close to the destructive force like the eruption that destroyed Pompeii. It's estimated that the explosion from the 79 CE incident was many times more powerful than the atomic bombs dropped on Japan at the end of World War II. And speaking of World War II, the last time Vesuvius erupted was on March 17, 1944. You can find old newsreels about this incident online. This latest eruption of Mount Vesuvius occurred about six months after the Allies had invaded mainland Italy in September 1943. I have a framed picture of my dad in Naples during World War II. Unfortunately, there's no date on the photo, so I don't know when he was in Naples. I have no idea if he was in Naples in March 1944. I wish I had asked him if he had witnessed Mount Vesuvius erupting. I wish I had asked my dad a million other questions about his life. Of course, even if I did he probably wouldn't have told me, at least not about World War II. I've discovered that most military veterans who have been in combat do not want to talk about it. And I get it. For people like me, it's history. But for them, it's reality. It's their personal lives. These veterans are trying to forget the incredible horrors they witnessed, which are so much more ghastly than our worst nightmares. But we do have an eyewitness account from American Sergeant Robert McCray, he kept a diary during World War II. Here is part of his entry for March 20, 1944. As I sit in my tent just off the runway of the Pompeii Airdrome, which is situated a few miles from the foot of Mount Vesuvius, I can hear at 4 to 10 second intervals the loud rumbling of the volcano on the third day of its present eruption. The noise is like that of bowling balls slapping into pins on a giant bowling alley. To look above the mountain tonight, one would think that the world was on fire. The thickly clouded sky glows like that above a huge forest fire, glowing brighter as the new spouts of flame and lava are spewed from the crater. As the clouds pass from across the top of the mountain, the flame and lava can be seen shooting high into the sky to spill over the sides and run in red streams down the slopes. Fortunately for the Italian people, as well as the Allied military, the eruption in March 1944 was very minor. There were no Allied military casualties, but there were 26 Italian civilians who died and approximately 12,000 people were displaced from their homes. Some experts believe that Vesuvius has a major eruption every 2,000 years or so. And the last major eruption was almost 2,000 years ago. That's a pretty terrifying thought when you consider that the population of the metropolitan area around present-day Naples is over 3 million people. And most of those people live within about 10 miles or 16 kilometers of Mount Vesuvius. That's it for today. Reviews greatly help. If you are listening on Apple Podcasts, it's easy to do. Scroll down the History Analyzed show page, select a rating, hopefully five stars, and then tap Write a Review. If reviews are allowed on your podcast app, of course, I would appreciate a nice review. If you're listening on Spotify or any other podcasts which allow ratings, I would greatly appreciate a five-star rating. Please subscribe to this podcast. Please like this and my other episodes. Please tell your friends, relatives, co-workers, word of mouth is the best way to increase the audience for History Analyzed. Check out my website, historyanalyzed.com, where you will find links to fun items for all the history geeks out there. Thank you for listening. Catch you next episode.